The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the editorial team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday, a show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. Roxanne Gay had her first breakout success as a writer when she was 40. By then, she'd been writing every day for the better part of three decades. I just wrote so much, and I was the only one that took myself seriously. And I met with quite a lot of rejection. And rightly so. Like, looking back at that work, it was not ready for the world. But I was ready for the world. (laughs) That first book that took off for her was Bad Feminist. It made her into a feminist hero, and all the work that she's done since. The novels, the memoirs, the comic books. Well, they've elevated her to the status of a literary rock star. Roxanne's writing is on point. She's funny and vulnerable and powerful. The writing itself is confident. It demands that we take her seriously. She's been interviewed by everyone from Terry Gross to Trevor Noah. Please welcome Roxanne Gay. But just think a second about the persistence that's involved in all of the years that came before that success. Think about how you keep it up without giving up. What little successes might feel like what the specter of rejection means. That old saying, never give up, is complicated. The outside world is full of people who will say no before they even consider you or your work. Agents may never get to your pitch at all. You have to believe in yourself, or no one else will. Roxanne kept her writing up anyhow. She read and supported other writers anyhow. And as a professor, she found ways to reinforce to her students that they should take their work seriously, too. Here's Roxanne. Do you write every day right now? I do still write every day. Yes. But, you know, some days that's three sentences and some days it's 5,000 words. It just depends. Uh, the, The challenging thing about success as a writer is that the more success you achieve, the less time you have to write. And I'm pretty much touring constantly, so... I have to write on airplanes and in hotel rooms and airport lounges and uh, lobbies and green rooms. And it it can be really challenging to assemble coherent thoughts when nothing is consistent from one day to the next. You have a certain confidence about yourself as a writer that is um, perhaps it is the backbone to your work. It is certainly a wonderful thing to perceive. Mm-hmm. And I want to know if you always had that confidence, if writing for you was like a, was, was in fact a calling, a thing that you always knew, independent of commercial success, was yours. Oh, absolutely. I've been writing since I was four years old. And I have loved writing since I was four years old. I don't know. I don't. I wouldn't say that I have confidence, but I can project confidence. I think that to be a successful writer, you have to project confidence and at some point feel confidence while also grappling with profound insecurity and self-loathing. So it, it's just a question of balancing those things. Um, but at the same time, you know, I have been doing this for a very long time. I've been writing for more than four 35 years, probably closer to 40 years now. Um, Even though, of course, you know, when I was four, I was writing what you would expect a four-year-old to write. I wasn't a prodigy or anything like that. I was writing silly little stories on napkins. Um, But 
you know, I've been writing with import with with I've been writing with purpose for more than 20 years. And so I would hope <laughs> after that many years and that much practice that I am at least reasonably talented at stringing some sentences together. If I wasn't, I mean, I should really get another hobby. <laughs> well, who are the people along the way that helped you to embrace that talent and develop it? My parents, certainly. They're Haitian and very insistent on the trifecta of engineering, medicine, or law. But uh, eventually they lear- realized that I was going to do what I was going to do. And they, they've they always been supportive, if not skeptical. Um, it took having a book available in Barnes & Noble for them to really realize that I was going to make a go of this writing thing. Uh, in high school, I had a writing teacher named Mr. McGuinn, and he definitely recognized that I had some writing talent. And he was actually the first person to tell me to write every day. And back then, I thought, oh, my God, he's giving me this precious piece of advice, and he's only telling me, and I really <laughs> felt very special. And so from that point on, I wrote every day, and I was like 14, 15 years old, and of course, the older I got, the more I realized, oh, like, that's a common piece of writing advice. Uh, but I felt like it was a very special and personalized piece of writing advice. So I took it deeply seriously. Um, I just wrote so much. And I was the only one that took myself seriously. And I met with quite a lot of rejection. And rightly so. Like, looking back at that work, it was not ready for the world. But I was ready for the world. <laughs> and so it just was sheer <laughs> persistence and a relentless personality that got me through. And when I started encountering commercial success, I I definitely had a mentor, Tiari Jones, who shepherded me the way she has shepherded and continues to shepherd many young Black writers, um, or rising Black writers, I should say. And... It, it it was definitely so important to have that support and to have a model for how to be a writer in public and how to be a writer in private. And I will always be grateful to her for her mentorship. So what do you mean she shepherded you? Well, a lot of times it was just advice and counsel on how to be how to be a Black writer in a world that oftentimes does not take Black writers seriously. And she always, especially early on, told me the importance of the Black writing community and how we don't have to all get along, but in general, we are at least in some form or fashion looking out for one another out in the world because we have to. If we don't, who will? And that piece of advice has really stayed with me. Even when I don't like someone, I I just think, well, I'm going to support them in the ways that I can. I don't need to like them. Um, uh, But more often than not, I actually do. Um, But just that sense of community and, and recognizing the importance of community and the importance of sharing the ladders that you climb and build in your career. And so the, the minute I could, I started to do mentoring for young writers, and I will always do that. So it's just, she's just a model. Like, she reaches out the minute, like, 
a young Black writer starts to get on the radar, she oftentimes will reach out and just be so kind and so helpful. She will call you on the telephone, which is a rarity in this day and age. You know, she has advice. She gives practical advice that is incredibly helpful. Um, she's just a role model and a- an amazing writer, too. You mentioned the difference between public and private, and I'm curious what you were getting at there, what you needed to learn. Oh, just, you know, how to how to be a writer in public, how to talk about your work, how to talk about the work of other writers, um, things like that. And in private, you know, how to put in the work and how to treat people, because it's actually the writing community is big, but it's also really small and everybody talks. And so it's really important to treat people well. And a lot of people Mm -hmm. forget that. And so it's always good to be reminded, treat people well and do unto others as you would have done unto you. Um, and and that's something that I try to do both publicly and privately and and to to know that and to always be encouraged to do that helps me to be a better person. During the period of time in your 20s and early and mid 30s when you were writing and you were teaching, I'm curious what your relationship was like and is like with with the students that you work with. Mm-hmm. What do they most need from you? I, it's oftentimes what students need is to be told that they can achieve greatness in their own way. They need to be told that they have power and the ability to wield that power effectively. Um, I am not a handholder. I am not nurturing but I do believe in encouraging my students to believe they are good writers and that they can become better writers. Because in academia, there is this rhetoric that students are bad writers and that each generation of students is is bringing about the end of the written word with their um, impoverished writing skills. This has been going on since the 1800s. And it's really kind of adorable that we are so short cited when it comes to our students' abilities. And so I try to reset that narrative in my classroom and let students know that you can accomplish anything, but you're going to have to work really hard. And I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to give you more work than you can probably get done, but I'm still going to do it and we're going to see what happens at the end of it all. And so some students love my classroom and some students hate it and call me a battle axe. And I'm fine with either one, but we have a good time. Uh, And I love working with students. They are so interesting and they always show me how to take risks in my own work because I see the risks that they take. I see how they start to learn the rules of writing and then grapple with the realization that they can not only work within the rules, they can break the rules as they see fit, as long as they do so with purpose. And it's always fun to see that realization and to see what they do with that realization. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, T 
TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. What is the interplay like between your teaching and your writing? If tomorrow you were told you never had to teach again, would it impact your writing? No, it would not. Um, because I think that there are all kinds of ways to teach and learn. And so... Even if I'm not in the traditional classroom, I am going to be learning from reading and from engaging with other writers. Um, I think the one thing that would change is that I probably would write more (laughs) because I would have to grade less. (laughs) How much should commercial success matter? I think it should be an end goal. And I think it's really disingenuous to suggest that it shouldn't, because how do you expect to pay your rent and your health insurance and the light bill? You know, the reality is that life costs money. And there's always this weird notion that you should only create for the love of creation and don't worry about material things. But like, who is taking care of the material things? For a lot of people, if you don't have a trust fund, Like, you have to worry about the material things. So I don't think that you should set commercial success as a goal, but commercial viability should absolutely be a goal. Um, Doesn't mean you shouldn't take chances or experiment or be radical, but it does mean that it's okay to want to make a good living for yourself as a writer. It is absolutely okay. You know, the problem isn't writers caring about commercial success. The problem is that it's so difficult to achieve um, because there are so many gatekeepers who only allow very specific kinds of work past the gates. This goes back to what you were saying about empowering your students to feel that they can be good writers. How do you do that? I tell them that they're good writers. And it, it sometimes people just need to know. They just need to hear that. And then, you know, I when I'm giving them feedback, I, I try to be as constructive as possible. But I'm also really honest. Like, I'll write WTF on a story. And I, I will say, like, what the hell are you doing here? And this doesn't make sense. This is nonsense. They need to know the truth. I, I don't mollycoddle them because they're not going to grow as writers if you just keep them in a safe little cocoon. But I'm not there to tear them down. I'm not there to insult them or their point of view. And so telling them the truth while reinforcing that they are 
good at what they're doing and they're going to get better by putting in the work is how I approach that. So your late 30s, that meant that for 15 years, maybe more, you considered yourself a writer, but the the world hadn't bestowed commercially that distinction upon you. I, I want to know how you how you nurtured the writer in yourself. I just wrote all the time and I read constantly as well. I I exercised the writing muscle and I wrote every single day uh, for quite a long time every day. I would go to work or school and then come home and write and not sleep very much and then do it all again the next day because writing was something and is still something that I find pleasurable. I enjoy it. I'm not a tortured writer. And uh, it also, in many ways, was self-medication because it was a way to lose myself in the work and not have to worry about the seemingly trivial concerns of the day-to-day world. So my favorite read of last year was Hunger. It was a book that really stayed with me. And in fact, knowing that we were talking this week, I I reread it um, last week. And you said in an interview with um, Debbie Millman, who I believe is your partner now. Yes, she is. You said to her, it's terrifying to tell the truth about yourself, to tell the truth about what it's like to live in your body. And it just got me to thinking, Roxanne, why is it so important to you to tell the truth? I think it's important to tell the truth uh, because all too often we only hear one kind of truth. Um, And that is the truth of uh, white, heterosexual, able-bodied men. And they get to be the arbiters of what matters and what does not. The more that people with marginalized voices are able to articulate their truths, the more that we can have a better understanding of what it means to be human in different kinds of bodies. And um, when we come from different cultures and different walks of life. And so it's not a noble thing. It's really more about just expanding our understanding of the human condition and and playing a very small part in that. You have said that that was a a scary topic to take on to write a book about. I mean, it's been a year and a half since the book came out. It's probably been longer since you began to write about it. And I'm wondering what distance has done for you as you look back at that book. Hmm. That's a good question. I think distance has made me realize that it really is important to talk about living in different kinds of bodies, that it's not a vanity project in any way, and that everyone struggles with living in a body in one way or another. And be- the seeing how people have responded to the book, regardless of the kind of body they live in, has really expanded my understanding of just the challenges of being human and being in a body. So uh, distance has certainly afforded me that. So what's the relationship like with your audience? Because you're pretty open about yourself, so I'm sure they must feel like they know you. You know, it's a complicated relationship because on the one hand, I am always happy that my work is reaching people and that my work resonates with people. On the other hand, it's really challenging because people give me their stories and it's a lot to carry my own trauma and my own history as well as the stories and histories of other people. 
And so I've had to develop very firm boundaries because I'm not a therapist. And writing this book was actually not therapy. It was work. And it was a very specific kind of work. And so I have to make clear to people that I honor their stories and I'm I'm flattered that they trust me enough to share their stories with me, but I can't always carry them in addition to my own. Do you think that that is specific to um, memoir as a genre and specifically memoir written by women? I think it is. And I think that people have very narrow ideas of the role that Black women should play and that they often expect Black women to be maternal and caretaking. And that's not my role in your life. Uh, I'm a professional. This is not all id or emotion. There is craft and rhetoric and choices that have gone into the shaping of the work, the structure of it, the articulation of the ideas. And I think it's important to remember that. We oftentimes dismiss women's work as emotional, and we act as if craft choices have not been made in the composition of that work. And so I always try to remind people that this was work, and I enjoy my work, but it wasn't. it's not a diary. A few decades from now, when you're looking back at your career, what do you want to have accomplished? I want to have created opportunities for other Black women writers to thrive in this world. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me about why you do what you do and how you do what you do. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you. That was Roxanne Gay, professor, critic, writer. You can check out her podcast, Here to Slay, which she hosts with Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom. This week's episode got me thinking about what it means to teach people well. Roxanne highlighted this idea. She said it had a lot to do with having confidence in them and with telling them that. It made me think of this amazing high school teacher that I had. Her name was Ellen Myers. You know, she told me I was smart and that I was a good writer. And looking back, I bet she said it to a lot of the kids, but I thought that that feedback was just for me. And that made me feel that I really mattered. And I think a lot of people probably have someone like that, a teacher or a mentor who made the difference for them. And I want to hear about those folks. So write to us at Hello Monday at LinkedIn or post on LinkedIn using the hashtag HelloMonday. And join us next week for a conversation with Wilson Tang. A decade ago, he inherited his family's Chinese restaurant. Growing up with immigrant parents, my parents wanted me to be able to have like a white-collar job and to own my own restaurant, and more specifically a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown, was definitely far from what they would want me to do. The restaurant was a hole-in-the-wall joint in Chinatown, And it could have gone the way a lot of New York's restaurants do, out of business. Instead, Wilson grew it into a global brand that was so popular that he and his family are now in ads for The Gap. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Laura Sim, Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Dave Pond is our technical director. Maya Mangini is our editorial program manager. Florencia Uriando is head of original audio and video. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We also featured music by Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. And thanks for listening. So this might be a base question, but do you like the internet in 2019? I like parts of the internet in 2019, and I think parts of it... I believe in free speech, but I think that social media really dropped the ball when they decided to let anything go. 
I think that allowing hate to flourish has done us a disservice. Allowing false information to flourish has done us a grand disservice. And I wish more people would take care of the spaces that they create because, you know, we're not allowed to litter. So why do we allow litter into our social media spaces? It's just really disappointing. They really shouldn't. Islamophobia, homophobia, misogyny, racism of all kinds. These are not acceptable ways of thinking and behaving. And this idea that we should tolerate it is absolute nonsense. And I wish more people would just say that and stop wrapping themselves in the First Amendment. The First Amendment doesn't mean you can't think that way. It means that there are consequences when you, you can say whatever you want, but you're not, you're not free from consequences just because of the First Amendment. It sometimes seems that some amendments are more important than others are certainly more protected and hidden behind. Absolutely. And also it's who gets to use those amendments, because oftentimes I block trolls and they say you're silencing me. And I'm like, I don't have to listen to you. I don't know you. I don't owe you my time. Like, get a grip. And it's just absurd. It's just a bunch of man children. They need to go back to their mothers. (laughs) 